This show is brought to you by my friends at Alliance and Trust. In wild times like these, you need more than financial product salespeople. You need a firm that looks at the entirety of your life and helps you with strategies that coordinate all disciplines of good stewardship so you can manage wisely what God has given you and thrive in these times of chaos and confusion. Have a team that acts as consultants in the business of you. Call 805-372-0821 to schedule your no-obligation discovery meeting. Welcome to the Bryce Eddy Show, where we are a threat to the Great Reset, and we are working hard to put the man back in mankind. And today's uh, guest is a repeat guest, and I had this gentleman on before. Um, he is a ponderologist, if uh, that's the correct term, but he studies the um, field of ponderology, which is the study of evil itself. And uh, these days, there's uh, no shortage of subjects that he can look into because the world is falling apart. And uh, please welcome the man, the myth, the legend, ponderologist, Harrison Cayley. How are you, brother? Good. Thanks for having me back on, Bryce. And I'll, I just have to point out that uh, I do not have a PhD in ponderology because unfortunately there are no universities that uh, offer offer such a program. So who knows, maybe in 10 years there will be a, some department that opens up a ponderology uh, you know, you know ponderology program and I can get accredited. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said in my opener, you know, you've got a lot to study with this. So, you know, it's a, it's a booming industry, um, and a booming field of study. So yeah, they should, uh, they should come up with it. Well, you mentioned the great reset, uh, in relation to your podcast. So, um, I don't know if you've read it yet, but I know, I know Michael Rechtenwald and he got a he put a new book out called The Great Reset. Um, I can't remember the subtitle. I don't have it with me, but I'm going to be writing a review of that because it's probably the best uh, best overview of the history of the WEF, all of the all of the groups, uh, the foundational groups that it kind of grew out of, like the Club of Rome, uh, Trilateral Commission, Council on Foreign Relations, how everything ties together, and the 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 core philosophy and the core kind of principles and guidelines that were established like, you know, a hundred years ago with the roads, uh, the roads round table groups and things like that, and how that has carried over through all of those incarnations into the present. So uh, just before I, before we even begin, I'd like to recommend that book because uh, yeah, I'll be reviewing it pretty soon. So anyone that checks out my Substack will be able to to see the high praise I give it and and how it ties in with uh, with ponderology. And oh, oh, terrific! Um, yeah, well, that sounds like a great uh, future guest for our show. So I would love that connection, and you know, maybe you can make that happen. Because um, yeah, that that is obviously yeah. a topic that that we take seriously because you are watching, and this does tie into your Substack and some of what you're writing. You are watching a you know a great movement um, that I think is um, really underpinned by um, some evil ideologies uh, uh, where they'd like to you know take away our you know God-given liberties and and things that that uh, we appreciate and that America was really founded upon um, and really the Western world was founded upon a lot of these um, ideas and ideals that the WEF and those people and the the elites and even the 
American ruling class is is working against right now. Um, so, um, yeah, it's a it's a pretty serious topic of of the day. Um, there's two things that I wanted to uh, particularly focus on with you, and I you know, and I'm fascinated by your Substack because what you're writing about I think is so deep, and you're you're coming at things with with such a great perspective. But um, but you you wrote. Um, uh, on uh, elites and the tradition of natural law in in one of your recent substacks, and I'd love to talk about that. And then I'd I'd love to pivot after that to um, talking about quality masculinity. And you've got a, a term tonic masculinity that you use that I think is great. So so let's uh, let's hit on that. And then you know this is your uh, you're the guest you're you're um, the the leader of the show in the regard. We can talk about whatever is fascinating you. Great. So you brought up the the elites question. So that's in a that's in an, an article um, that's actually the introduction to a chapter in a book called Logocracy. Now, for people who haven't who didn't tune in the last time I was on the show, so my Substack is called Ponderology, from the book Political Ponderology by Andrew Lobachevsky. So it's kind of a scientific take on evil, looking at it from all these angles, like you mentioned. And he wrote another book called Logocracy, which it's only available in Polish. So I've been publishing it for publishing translations of each chapter for uh, my paid subscribers on Substack. And then I do a kind of a summary for, uh, for free. So anyone, anyone that doesn't subscribe, um, you know, with cash can at least get a, an overview of whatever chapters about and logocracy is his, his proposal for uh, like a better system of government that would avoid kind of the pitfalls that we've, that we've seen in pretty much all, all current and previous forms of government. And so, uh, well, that's a, a huge topic. He wrote a book about yeah. it, but this chapter in particular l- looks at the problem of, of elites. Because if we look through through history uh, and current day, well, pretty all of human history, you're going to find elites. And this led the kind of the Machiavellian, the, the realist elite theorist school of sociologists like, uh, like Mosca and Pareto, um, in the you know early 1900s to to kind of follow the line of Machiavelli in instead of presenting an idealistic picture of what politics is or should be, they took a kind of empirical approach and says, well, this is how politics is and is practiced. And to kind of derive almost sociological laws from that. And so one of the conclusions is, is uh, why it's called elite theory is because they see elites as just uh, an, an eternal and inescapable part of human civil, human society, human psychology, human being. And even when you go back to pre-civilization eras, when if you look at tribal societies, you still get a differentiation between, um, it doesn't take the rigid class structure like some, some more modern societies have had, but you do have that gradation of you've got the leaders, you've got the leader's family, and then you've got... Uh, you know, the hunters and the workers, things were a lot more egalitarian, but the reason they were a lot more egalitarian is because they had to, to, to survive as a tribe. So that's when you'd get the, the tribal leader that would have to, you know, in some, some North American, you know, native traditions, you had the, what was it? The, um, well, every once in a while, it was it at the potlatch. I can't remember. Where basically the, the rich had to essentially give up a whole bunch of what they had to redistribute it because they had acquired everything essentially. And when you get, once society gets to a point where it's past the tribal level, where it approaches a certain level of just numbers and complexity, 
then it's it, it is inevitable that you'll get a class division. You you will get a you know a, a small a small group of people that will have the majority of the stuff. And the problem that Lobachevsky identifies is is kind of that's kind of a starting point. You every society is going to have an elite structure, but you can have different f- formulations of uh, different different ways of of achieving that that elite structure. So who's going to be the elites? This is where you see the the kind of the the class um, the the kind of class theorists, like you know Marx was one of them, but people who look at at these different class structures, and you'll see how there was like in in the UK there was the the landed aristocracy that slowly got taken over and displaced by the uh, you know, by the capitalists, the bourgeoisie. So you have these kind of class um, transitions, and the the the, cl- the elite theorists. I think it was per- I think it was Pareto, but it might have been one of the other ones. Called it the the um, the circulation of elites. So you have a certain group of elites, and then those ones, you know, g- fall out of power f- for whatever reason and get displaced by others. Could be through a like a violent revolution, or it could be th- could be through this kind of um just this this process of gradual displacement. Where eventually you find out that okay, well now the the people with the new technology, the people that with the this new way of doing things are the ones that are now in charge. And today we live in a managerial society, so uh, yeah. you know, the, well, the, the managers pretty much run everything. Yeah. So um, what I find, okay. found, go ahead. Just uh, really quickly, so the the problem that Lobachevsky ident- identifies is, well, how are those elites selected, and then he basically says, well, the different the, the different ways that have been tried haven't worked. Basically, there has to be a new way of of selecting the elites, the way that society itself selects from within itself the people who will be, you know, that ruling class. For the Alliance Interest family, finance is in their blood. I grew up with them and they've handled my entire financial world for nearly 30 years. And as a testament to their talents, they've managed to keep me not just out of trouble, which is in and of itself remarkable, but they've helped me to build real wealth. They've assisted me through complex business transactions and family matters. Now, even my daughters are working with Uncle Randy to put financial disciplines in place for their futures. Invest with people who share our values and will help you be a good steward with what God has given you. Have a no-obligation discovery conversation with the team at Alliance and Trust by calling 805-372-0821. Again, 805-372-0821. See if their strategies are a good fit for you. You know, one of the um, things that I find interesting is no matter what structure a society takes, uh, a society decides or whatever takes place in a society, someone is going to accumulate power through whatever means are available. Um, Ambitious people do ambitious things and they are going to accumulate what they can. And that includes, you know, in the um, society that the... um, you know, Marxist advocates or these, you know, uh, Antifa cats that are out there, um, you know, protesting that want to see socialism or or communism or any of those variations, someone will accumulate the power. And and actually, most of the time, it's never them. 
because they don't have what it takes usually to accumulate that power, but somebody's going to own it. I think our founding fathers, and you can um, you know debate this with me or, or challenge me on this, I think our, our founding fathers tried to create in our structure, at least this was their attempt, the um, most, uh, let's see, available means for us to work hard and accumulate power on our own. And that's in that, you know, decentralized model, the checks and balances. They tried to, in other words, prevent um, unfair accumulation of power. Now, we're still going to have it, and we see that, and we see corruption you know, at the highest levels in order to consolidate power within our system. Um, but, you know, somebody's going to have it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the American system, you know, I'm not a, I was never a big into um, into, into politics. You know, I was never right. big into hi- histories of government or political theories like that. Like, um, That's why I like I'm, talking I to you, by the way. More from a psychological <laughs> more from a philosophy, like a psychological perspective but from what i from what i've read and what i kind of what i kind of see the i i don't think i disagree with you but i'd say that one of the downsides with however the american system works or or has worked and maybe it's changed over time is that is that despite those good things is that the the people the people who tend to be the ones that become um you know that enter those leadership leadership positions aren't the most competent correct they, like they aren't the best choices the best choices right and maybe that's well i think that is um there are there are scales and degrees right so part of the part of this whole line of argumentation is that it's premised on the idea that some systems are better than others right. some are worse than others now that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that any of them necessarily approach like an ideal or good system it just means that okay in this regard we can say that oh well this country has done this aspect a lot better than these other countries so That's you can fair. look at like uh, the USSR or you can you can look at the communists and say okay they did all of these things like totally wrong the the absolute worst people got you know got into positions of power so that's what ponderology is talking about that's what lobachevsky is talking about when he's when he's talking about nazi germany and the, yeah. the soviet union and the you know the warsaw pact countries and, and communist china like this was these were examples where it was like you take the absolute worst people and put them in power then you get countries where you get kind of like mediocre people and it's like it's better than the worst people but it's you know they're still mediocre they still don't do a very good job theoretically you can so you can see that there's there's there have to be um some kind of societal norms and even institutions in place that will allow one system to to do that one thing a little bit better and so lobachevsky is essentially saying in logocracy that well there's a way to make things even better than the the mediocrities that Mm -hmm. that um that are still still better than some of the alternatives but um, but he's essentially saying, well, there's got to be a better way. And now, now, and did he? Part of that is well, he's yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, did he no, def, did he define the better way um, in this clearly, or did he? You know, I mean, what or is he just you know being a problem identifier? Like, hey, this this isn't working. There's got to be a better way. Which you know, I mean, I, I I respect problem identifiers, but you know, what is the solution? Well, yeah. Well, he he does provide a solution that's that's part of what i'm still working my way through so as i'm 
as I'm going through and putting up each chapter, I'm kind of like, you know, thinking about it and trying to try to understand what exactly his points are. So I'm still, I'm still at pretty much in the introductory phases of the yeah. book. Yeah. So, but he, he does, he does think that the system, you know, he might be wrong, but he does think that the proposals he puts forward would be a better option. Um, one of the things that he makes that he points out in this chapter, though, it's, it's just a minor thing is that it's, it, 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 it can't be a matter of just creating, let's say, a um, like a Department of Government whose sole purpose is to fish out good leadership material, like in the public. Mm-hmm. He says even that won't work. That the the kind of the norms, the selection norms, have to be part of the you know the very fabric of society. Have to be part of. Um, you know, civics classes, education, just uh, general interaction. It has to be has to kind of seep down into the into the the everyday lives of people. Where because we don't do that, right? We don't we don't look around on the streets and in our in our small towns and in our interactions with people. Say, okay, I'm looking for who's going to be the best mayor. Yeah. No, it's like it's it's you're going to have two or three guys that are going to put themselves up for office, and then and then. You probably won't know them. You certainly won't know them if you're if it's for you know your governor or or the president. Um, you just say, okay, well here here are the options, and I'm going to choose between them. There isn't that uh, that awareness from from a very grassroots level of identifying leadership material. Right. Now, there is when it just comes to local matters, like if it just comes to to um, you know people in a neighborhood or people in a business or a you know. A, um, um, a group of businesses. We humans are actually very good at at doing this sort of thing on that kind of low level. Um, I think we self-organize pretty well to the point where, um, you know, that, that's the, that's the reason most most things don't actually fail. They they work pretty well. I mean, you know, the the electricity stays on for the most part. You know, you can you can find competent people. You can find a lot of incompetent people, but um, but things things tend to tend to organize in a pretty optimal way not you know not perfect but certainly not uh, to the point where everything's falling apart but when it comes to when it comes to politics um the way lobachevsky puts it is that there are so, there are too many advantages to being in power mm-hmm. so that so that that attra- that attracts people to to those positions that you know ordinary people in in their ordinary lives wouldn't ordinarily give them give that power over to them if they if they you know interacted with them and knew what they were really like well Instead, for sure you get a group of people that you know <laughs> you know that, that put themselves that that put themselves forward that's why i was joking on a comment on on my Substack the other day someone had made you know a similar point in a, in a comment on a different article and i said sometimes i think that it would be better if if um, leadership positions, if politicians were drafted instead of put themselves up for election, right? It's like, okay, you have to you have to be in charge for the next you know two years or four years. Yeah, well, you know what was interesting about that is that was a little bit, and you know, and, and look, we talk on this show a lot about what our founding fathers envisioned, you know, because what they had was a distinct worldview, and that worldview included some of the things that you write about, and I don't, I know you don't, you don't come across it with the same same worldview that I I do necessarily, but. 
you know, we believe in sin and we believe that, you know, man is inherently corrupt, right? Um, so what we did was try to prevent those psychopaths that are drawn to power and those sociopaths that are drawn to power from uh, uh, being able to accumulate it all, because if they can, they will. And so, uh, you know, our founding fathers said, okay, that's why we need the natural decentralization model to reign supreme so that, you know, the harm that those psychopaths Psychopaths can do are only so much. You know, here in California, you know, uh, talking your point earlier, here in California, our method of selecting somebody is, you know, we we uh, you know uh, pick the people who who can lie the best and do the best campaigning. Once they get into, uh, you know, a mayoral position, they could be the worst mayor on the planet and actually ruin a city. And then we just promote them. And that's how we select them for higher office, like we did with Gavin Newsom. And now, you know, he's being considered as, as one of the runners possibly for president. And, uh, and you know, that's, that's our weird and perverse way that we do it here in California. Um, you know, uh, and I mean, really, it's, it's, a, it's a suicidal commitment to um, incompetence that we have mm -hmm. yeah but you you're definitely right and the, the founding fathers were definitely right about with the focus on that decentralization and i and i think also the separation of powers i mean i mean mm -hmm. the there are there are monarchists right around and imperialists that uh, that kind of that I think even accurately identify some of the some of the positive aspects of uh, you know an absolute uh, autocracy. Um, of course, it also comes absolute autocracies also also come with their downsides. Um, but I, I do think that the uh, you know, I'm with Lobachevsky on this that you know I think the the separation of powers was a was a good idea and gen is generally a good idea and generally works. And is probably it's probably a reason why the United States isn't isn't yet a a complete you know uh, monoparty totalitarian system. Um, Not yet. But you know it's it's they're they're trying really hard, and in 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 certain aspects you know they've 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 achieved quite a lot yeah. along those along those lines. Amen. But uh, they're not they're not quite there yet. Yeah, yeah, we're we're getting there. That's that's for sure. And their uh, their their goal is to get us there, which uh, which is a fascinating thing to to watch. I mean, you know, in some respects, we're we're close to a failed state because of some of that drive that they have. Um, you know, I I find it again um, so interesting in the thought process, though that people insist upon who are looking at, let's call it the rosy view of what socialism or communists can, can bring, where they, they believe that that is the answer, that you know pow that power now will be spread and everybody will behave well if they're given you know their little um, you know square, uh, their little part and parcel of the of this um, you know machine. Um, and that's just not true, because in those types of societies, as you described and, you know, the ones you mentioned, um, you know, they all got dominated by psychopaths at the bureaucratic levels. And you just exchanged, you know, the possibility for more people to accumulate to less people to accumulate. And you you essentially shrunk the size of the pie, too, because. It just doesn't it doesn't work in terms of production and everything else that capitalism, even in its corrupt form, can bring. 
Birch Gold makes it easy to convert an IRA or 401k into an IRA in precious metals. Here's what you need to do. Text BRYCE to 989898 to claim your free info kit on gold and then talk to one of their precious metals specialists. Think about this. To dig our country out of this mountain of debt, every single taxpayer in America would have to write a check for $247,000, and it's only getting worse. Protect yourself with gold today by texting BRYCE to 989898. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, thousands of happy customers, and countless five-star reviews, you can trust Birch Gold to protect your future. Text BRYCE to 989898 today. Yeah, you put it well. I don't really have anything to add to that. That's <laughs> that's pretty much exactly what happens. And oftentimes, like you like you said, um, the the replacement is often worse than the you know the, the thing that it replaced. It's because people a lot of the a lot of the activists, like you know the communist or socialist activists. I mean, it's not like they had. It's not like they didn't have any um, legitimate grievances. Or things that were done poorly in, say, Tsarist Russia, mm-hmm. um, but the the result was that they created a system that was worse in almost every way imaginable. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I think you know. Again, I think it's um, it's somewhat inescapable as long as there's human beings running things, and and maybe our robot overlords will do a better job. But um, but as long as there are human beings running things you are going to have corruption, you are going to have um, mm-hmm. dis, dis-ease, you are going to have broken systems, you're going to have imperfections. Um, what we need to do is do the best we possibly can with what we've got. And I, I think that once people... Um, you know, realize that there is no ideal system. That's, it's like, uh, it's like realizing you're part of the problem is the key to, you know, repairing yourself and, and, you know, key to good relationships over time. Um, you know, instead of again, fantasizing, like a lot of people do that, uh, that they can craft it better. Um, can, can you talk a little bit more? I mean, I know he, he, uh, in the book, he talks about, um, you know, that idea of drafting people, which again is kind of the concept that our founding fathers thought, you know, you were going to become a, that was there where the term public ser- servant came from is you are going to step away from your life of wealth and privilege, and you're going to sacrifice, you know, on behalf of the people. And then you're going to, after a short period of time, once you've left your mark and you've done your duty, you're going to return back to your farm, your business, your whatever, and your, your previous life. Um, uh, what you know? What does he does he go into further detail on on kind of what he envisioned? That that would have to be wait for a future interview because I know he ta- I know he talks about it, but it's mm-hmm. in a future chapter. You haven't tra- you haven't that, translated uh, that part yet. That okay. <laughs> no, well, it's been translated and I've looked at it briefly, but I haven't uh, I haven't studied enough to to be able to to share what he thinks about that. Just that. Um, no, let, let let's put a hold on that one for okay. a, for a future conversation. Okay. I, yeah. Fair yeah, enough. I don't know I... enough about uh, about that bit yet. 
Yeah. Again, I, um, I, I'm interested because, uh, you know, there's plenty of people out there, like I said earlier, that are problem identifiers and okay, you know, come to me with the solution then. And let's, uh, let's see if that, you know, has any merit. Well, well, I will, I will say that, uh, it's, it's a high likelihood that most Americans, um, won't like the book because, um, <laughs> cause he's, he's, well, he's, he's Polish, he's, he's European. So he's, it's a very, un, I wouldn't say un-American book. Well, in, in some ways it is un-American in that like he doesn't, uh, uh, well, who knows? I, I'd have to talk to, to, to some people about it. But one of the aspects of, of what he proposes, for instance, is that he doesn't believe in, a, in the universal franchise. He doesn't believe that everyone should have the right to vote. But <clears throat> he does think that by, by limiting the franchise to say, um, like he thinks that, you should only be able to vote if you um, like take take basically a short course, a short civics course. You have to learn certain things. You have to have certain responsibilities, yeah. you know, duties that go along with your um, with your rights to vote. And then um, so it's not automatic. You know, citizenship doesn't guarantee uh, you know the vote. Um, but uh, or no no automatic yeah automatic like national citizenship. You know doesn't doesn't guarantee the vote. Well and of course. You know, yeah, um, even that doesn't really apply in yeah. some places well, in the uh, states today. Uh, I'll... But, but he, but just really quick, he argues that by doing so, he thinks that the 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 voting rate, the number of people that actually vote, would be higher than in the countries like the U.S. and and everywhere. You know, a lot of the places that don't have compulsory voting, he thinks that the the, the the electoral turnouts would actually be higher if you limit the franchise and make it make make it. You have to put a little bit of effort in into order in order to gain the right to vote, basically. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I I actually don't disagree with that. So, uh, but I I look at it a little bit differently. So number one, um, the left wants the most people voting possible. That's how they can manipulate the minds of the stupid people. And by the stupid people, I mean the uninformed and ill-informed, poorly informed people, um, the the emotionally informed people. Um, you know, that's why they want to lower the voting age to 16. I mean, you know, before people's, uh, you know, brains are fully developed, you know, because then they can give emotional messages out there that will manipulate them into giving the left the power that they are asking for. Hey, we're going to give you free stuff. Vote for us. And and it's the low information voter that's going to be most likely to be pulled into that kind of a thing. Um, I look at it a little bit like I look at the Second Amendment, and I've and I've gotten in trouble a little bit saying this because you know it's just such a you know a holy issue for most Americans, myself included. I believe one hundred percent in the Second Amendment, and I believe that it it shouldn't have almost any qualifications for it, except for the individual responsibility that I think people have, where I don't believe guns are right for everyone, because with it comes an awesome amount of responsibility that you need to take. So I'm not going to prevent people from you know exercising their Second Amendment right, but I want them to have responsibilities like 
serious yeah. training and um, a bunch of other things uh, as a part of that that they need to voluntarily take part in. I believe the same thing with voting. You know, if you do not know and cannot name the vice president or any of, you know, our historically significant issues, if you're interviewed on the street and you have zero clue about anything and you don't pay taxes and you still live with your parents and you don't uh, willfully have a job and all of those sort of things, I would like you to stand down. I would like you to not participate because you're going to make most likely very bad decisions that go against the people who are responsible, who do have jobs, who do know, who have educated themselves, who are reading through the issues and and not allowing themselves to just be emotionally manipulated. And again, you know, there's people on the left that know the issues and, and, and make choices and have decisions and ideas that I would completely disagree with. And they would vote completely against me from a position of actually being informed. I think they're crazy. I think they're nuts. I think they uh, have bad ideas in their heads, but they have read through it and that I can respect. But, you know, we have a lot of people that, that, um, I don't think should be voting. How do you say I love you? Is it with flowers, chocolate, can jewelry express true love? In the end, they all fall short. The only thing that can completely communicate the depths of your affection this Valentine's Day is meat. Not any meat, though. Over 85% of grass-fed beef sold is imported from overseas. That's why it has to be Good Ranchers. 100% American hand-trimmed steakhouse quality meat delivered to your door. Don't say it how you always have. Say it with meat. Right now, you can get $30 off when you order any box from Good Ranchers and use the code BRYCE. This is a gift sure to add sizzle to that special day, whether on the grill or in a pan. Nothing simmers like prime cuts of beef, pasture-raised chicken, and premium quality seafood. You can get it all at GoodRanchers.com. Perfect for the lady, the man, or yourself this Valentine's Day. Good Ranchers is the gift that keeps on grilling. Ditch the usual gifts that just don't cut it anymore. Say it with American meat instead. Snag your $30 off with my code BRYCE at GoodRanchers.com today. Love is in the air and it smells just like, you guessed it, Good Ranchers. Save $30 on your unique gift this Valentine's Day by visiting GoodRanchers.com. American meat delivered. Yeah, Lobachevsky would agree. <laughs> so that's, he's got a chapter that I've already put up. I think it might be chapter five um, on democracy. And it's, um, it's his criticisms of, of modern democracies. Um, and that's one of them is that you do get a lot of low information voters. And that's, he relates that to, to the problem I rated, uh, I related earlier about the incompetence of leaders is that, is that the, the people that <clears throat> seek public office then have to cater their not only their speech and their their you know the things they tell the public which may or may not be true but also their policies to a public that may not understand them and um and and thomas Sowell gets into this too when he's talking about politicians in general and the there's a there's an like an incentive structure to propose and put into place policies to solve problems don't actually work and that can't work but 
they have to keep doing them because that's what people want, you know? So people might, you know, it might be an issue with, uh, well, it might be an issue with taxes or like minimum wage or something um, and could go, could go either way, but there'll be something with that. Okay. This policy, we know it doesn't work because every time it's been tried, it, it, you know, hasn't worked. And you, you can look even in American history and T Thomas Sowell's great at that. You know, he yeah. looks and says, okay, well, this didn't work here. Here's how, it, here's how it didn't work. But here we keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And it's, uh, it's this, it's this negative feedback loop where it's kind of this inescapable black hole um, of, you know, dumb, dumb voters and dumb politicians just feeding back into each other. Or I guess that's that positive feedback loop. And, um, and yeah, so, so he'd say, okay, no, let's, let's eliminate the problem with the, at the, uh, at the, at the very root of it. No, you can't vote <laughs> now. Now, if you want, if you want to be able to, to vote, you have to learn the name of the, of the vice president. You have to know a bit of, of the history. You have to know a bit about the, the way the government works. And once you demonstrate that knowledge, then, then you're free to vote however you want. Right. Yeah. So yeah. That's, and what it, he, that's what he proposes. Yeah. And I, and I like that now the, um, the Democrat party and the left, um, you know, they, uh, would not, of course, go for that because that eliminates a big part of the voter base that they're able to influence um, who who don't know what's uh, you know what they're really doing. Um, now, the their counter argument, of course, which which does have some actual weight is, well, OK, what about these people in bad circumstances that and those bad circumstances are caused by bad policy, bad law? Um, you know, and and, the, and that's the reason that they are unable to, um, you know, know what they need to know and participate or or and that that was the issue with like, um, you know, making it tied to property or, you know, things like that was, well, these people are being held down by the system and they need to be able to vote against those things that are holding them down. And I and I understand that position now. That's not really the case um, because we know that that uh, people in the worst of worst circumstances um, can and and yes, it's hard uh, and yes, they have an uphill battle, but they can you know meet those requirements and they can decide to participate you know even with many generations of um, you know legacy issues you know there's people that that part of that battle actually is what makes them strong for them and the future generations that follow them mm -hmm. well and and still like this specific proposal would be um, you know it's not like a it's not as it's not an issue like um, like land you know land holding, you know, you have to own a certain amount of property in order to vote. It's actually, it's, it's, it's a lot simpler. It's like, you need to learn these things. Yeah. And so all of the, all of the like nonprofits and, um, you know, things that are, that are designed to go out and get those votes from, you know, to basically f find as many voters as possible just to get, get their ballots. Um, all of those organizations that exist, they could very easily transfer into, okay, here are the classes that free classes where yeah. we we teach you basic civics and and you know the things you need to know in order to vote and you know um, maybe it wouldn't work out the same way that they that they wanted to work the the way they wanted to work out but uh, all of those resources could be devoted to that and like you said it's not it's not insuperable I mean it's like the it's like 
a lot of the Democrats who say that, you know, anti-voter ID laws, um, who, who say, oh, well, you know, you can't have voter IDs because some, you know, some some people, uh, some some uh, historically marginalized groups can't find the DMV, right? And then you go on the street and interview interview black yeah, people and uh, say, it's I know absurd. how to get to the DMV. Like, it's totally patronizing, right? So it's, oh, not, yeah, that's like, a... it's not like it would be impossible for, yeah. Yeah, that's an example of their manipulative racism. I mean, that's that's really what they are expressing there because that is the stupidest uh, thing, and it's a it's a non-issue. And it and just doing that, I mean, we require IDs for everything, and so requiring IDs to to vote to to for basic participation in our country is not too high a bar. But again. Um, you know, if it, the more you tighten those things down, the less opportunity the nefarious actors have to manipulate the system and, you know, gin up um, votes for their particular efforts. Um, so, uh, but listen, let me just tell you right now for the future, if, um, if I am ever in place as the temporary dictator to straighten things out, I'm going to have you as a part of my administration, because I think some of your ideas on that, um, you know, I, th I think they, I think they're good. You can come up with, uh, with the tests and everything and, and, and we can force those NGOs to switch gears and actually do some good and educate some people and instead of uh, ballot harvesting. All right, yeah, I'm on for that. I've got a, I've got a whole team of advisors that uh, that I could bring on board with me. Okay, I love it. All right, well, it's a plan. So, you know, should it happen, you're in. Um, let's shift gears um, real quick because I love the term tonic masculinity and I'd love for you to to explore that in the, you know, remaining, uh, you know, 10 minutes that we have. Sure. So tonic masculinity, I mean, the, the phrase has come up a couple times on the internet over the past several years, but a friend of mine, uh, Jay Rollins, and then another friend, uh, John Carter, on their substacks, uh, I think they were the two that wrote about it before me. Um, maybe one, maybe Grant Smith did. Well, there's a few of us, like a handful of us that have all written about it. Um, you can uh, you can check out. No, I was the third. Um, <laughs> but it's a... Uh, so the the idea is, I mean, there's this. This is the point that John made originally on his piece. Um, he he writes at um, telegram. Is it telegrams from Barsoom? Um, uh, Barsoom.substack.com. In any case, you can find a link to it. Postcards from Barsoom. Sorry. Yeah, telegrams is his telegram channel. So um, he he was basically writing about there's this. Okay, there's masculinity, right? But this introduction of the term toxic masculinity has pretty much taken over it's, it's colonized the the idea of masculinity itself yeah. to the point where anything masculine is viewed as toxic masculinity so we're stuck in this in this cognitive like definitional space where we have no 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 positive connotations or or a word that evokes positive connotations about masculinity we've just got masculinity itself which is kind of neutral and um, and might even lead, lead lend itself towards being interpreted as toxic masculinity and you've got toxic masculinity, which kind of encompasses masculinity for the uh, at least the people that use it, and then maybe unconsciously for the people that even just hear the term or or or, or use the term. So tonic masculinity is is presented as a word to evoke those positive connotations and those positive meanings of masculinity that get lost and ignored because, um, they, you know, frankly, uh, boys growing up, young men growing up 
not only do they not have any of the kind of masculine institutions that have existed, um, you know, whether whether it's initiation type things or, you know, a demarcation at a point where you become a man, positive role models, um, you definitely don't see them. I mean, some some kids are, are gifted to, to, be, to be able to have men like that in their lives. Um, a lot don't. And if you look in the media environment on the internet and on TV and in movies, it's also pretty lacking. So tonic masculinity is essentially just a word to evoke those positive things and to kind of focus the mind on trying to think about what those things might be. And of course, they're the things that have always existed and the things that, uh, you know, there's, there's nothing really new about it, but it becomes new by rediscovering it because a lot of, a lot of, you know, a lot of boys don't, don't have the frame of reference to even identify what the positive things about masculinity are. And so um, in, the, in this kind of series of articles that I, you know, uh, an informal series of, uh, you know, me and some of my, my bros that, that have, have written pieces, we kind of just touch on aspects of them, right? And in my piece, uh, you know, being a kind of a, a, um, an unintentional brainiac, um, you know, sometimes I tend to over-intellectualize things. I looked, at the, I looked at the definition itself of tonic and all the different definitions of what the word means and relating that to, to you know, just to why it's a good word mm -hmm. and kind of and I think that's part of part of why I think even you like the concept and why anyone might like the concept is just because the word itself is an awesome word um, because tonic essentially means like if you think about taking a tonic um, it's something that promotes a feeling of vigor and well-being yeah um, it's got uh, uh, you know tonic water is is you know, gin and tonic that's awesome in music <laughs> tonic is the 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 root note it's the it's the first note of the scale that's the that's the 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 root the the note that provides the sense of home the sense of of belonging where things where things are and the it's what's what uh what music resolves to so when a when a when a, a piece of music um ends if it's uh you know not all pieces of music end like this but when it ends with a sense of of full resolution that's the tonic note that's the tonic chord and um also you know in phonetics it's the the tone is the or tonic is the um the syllable that has the greatest prominence the greatest uh, like emphasis so it's the thing that gives um that gives prominence or or eminence or um you know importance to things so tonic masculinity is kind of what stands out it's it's virtue it's the thing that um it's excellence you know it's masculine excellence and so just i think just i think having that as an as as a word that you can hear in your head i i think that's the first step towards um not only being able to identify um you know masculine excellence in in well in yourself hopefully but also in others around you and then which can then be evoked in you and that which you can develop for yourself to actually you know become uh tonically masculine so i like that's it. my short overview no that's good well um yeah so that's the reason why i liked it a couple of quick uh comments and observations so the reason that they did uh toxic masculinity i mean that you know the left has mastered um you know or our opposition whatever you want to call it they have mastered language takeover and and they by using the term toxic masculinity it has made all masculinity have that taint 
And so um, there's nothing inherently masculine about violence. In fact, violence in and of itself, you know, I mean, women commit all kinds of acts of violence. Violence is not a masculine trait. Um, They've done all kinds of things that are just sinful and evil things. And they have ascribed it to manhood, which is a great evil because it has neutered many men. It's caused men um, that traditionally should have masculine roles to hang back. It's caused the weakening of our masculinity and those positive expressions which masculinity in and of itself, just like femininity, is a positive turn. I mean, a positive term. And, and so they've done that all very intentionally. And we do need to take it back, which is why I liked you using that term and, you know, you and your, your other compatriots, um, because I think it's good. That's the other reason why, you know, joking about toxic masculinity or, you know, which I've done online, you know, that, hey, I'm the toxic masculinity guy here, you know, little things like that too, in order to neuter their, um, you know, intentions behind it, you know, just own it. Um, because again, there's nothing masculine yeah. about bad behavior. Mm-hmm. I think, but you see what the position that we're put into, right, is that we have to, we have to appropriate their, um, their negatively connotated words. Like we have to say, okay, yeah, I'm toxic. Well, that's, that's like st- step one. Yeah. Step two is, is, uh, is tonic masculinity to say, no, I, I'm, I'm actually awesome. Um, well, you know, n- not in a narcissistic way, but no, these aspects of, of masculinity and, uh, and the masculinity that, that I try to embody is the, the awesome, the excellent, you know, tonic masculinity. And I've actually got a piece that, uh, that I'll be putting up probably next week. So it, it'll, it may or may not be up by the time, uh, you know, this talk goes live, but where, where I talk a little, I start out a little bit by talking about the the stealing um, of of the best words and how they've been appropriated and yeah. um, you know turned into their opposites, <clears throat> and how yeah we we have we we have to kind of reclaim those words. This is one of them, tonic masculinity. But um, we can also start uh, appropriating some of their words. So Grant Smith, um, another one of the guys that was right that that did a piece on uh, tonic masculinity. He's got a piece that he called tonic intersectionality. <laughs> And so he basically appropriated their word because intersectionality was never was never our word. Like you know, it was invented by Kimberly Crenshaw, you know, critical a critical theorist. And uh, so no, you know, we're going to take that word from you now. So we're going to appropriate yeah. your word. Um, so uh, yeah, so we have to we have to not only take take the good words back. Um, you know, we can we can diffuse their their negative words by using them as you did, you know, with yeah, okay, you can call me toxic. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm toxically masculine. Um, but we have to we have to I think that um, yeah, the next step, the next stage is to to reappropriate the good words and to take over some of their words and um, and and use them towards a positive purpose as opposed to the kind of destructive dis- divisive purposes to which they put them. Yeah, well my my fi- my final point to that is that uh, when when it comes to masculinity we cannot let shrill um, uh, whiny women or men who can't do a pull up define what masculinity is. That's our first mistake. Yeah, no, I can agree with that. We can 
we can uh, we can put that right at the top of the of the definition. There you go. I love it. All right. Hey, listen. Um, how do people follow your Substack? Give us the address and the details, um, and uh, and it, whatever else you want to to plug. So you can find it at ponerology.substack.com. Ponerology is P-O-N-E-R-O-L-O-G-Y. And uh, that's pretty much all you need. I'm on Twitter. I don't really post very much, but you can find me at RainDogBone. And uh, that's, yeah, that's all you need. I've got all my, that's where all my writing is. That's where I hang out. And um, yeah, if you become a paid subscriber, um, then you'll get access to the translations of Logocracy. And um, also what we're just starting out is um, basically a, a Slack chat. So you'll, you'll get an invite to uh, to a Slack chat for readers of my Substack and uh, and some uh, some other Substacks too. So it's kind of a, a meeting place for uh, for kind of a, a range of readers that might not ordinarily um, encounter each other. So ponerology.substack.com. That's, cool. That's cool. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. If you want to hang out with the cool, smart kids, now you know where to go. So, hey, I, I appreciate you, brother. Thank you for coming on. Um, I find what you're doing fascinating and, uh, and I love it. And I hope to have you as a uh, often repeat guest. So thank you and appreciate you. Anytime. Thanks, Bryce. Take All care. right. All right. Well, we're out.